we have been walking through now 46 weeks. We've been taking a tour through the Bible, kind of at the 30,000 foot view. We're not diving in verse by verse, but looking at the story of the Bible. And we've been looking at how since Genesis, there's this one singular story that God's telling. And we've seen at the bottom of the story, the, the moral of the story, the lesson of the story, the goal of the story, it's all about Jesus. And we've been seeing this clearly. We've got about six weeks left in our series before we transition there at the beginning of December into a time of celebrating Jesus' birth at Christmas. Um, But we've been talking about Jesus, and we're coming here to this last week of his life. And if you remember, we've got these symbols that help us to remember the the story and the way that it connects together. So let's see if you can remember. Do it with me here. We've got God, creation, fall, promise, flood, tower, patriarchs, Exodus, law, conquest, judges, kingdom, divided, exile, return, silence, and Jesus. There we are. We got it. We're here. Uh, I am a pastor here at the church, uh, so I do spend uh, at least 40 hours a week, I promise. I know you tithe me, so I I, I try to work for you, Uh, but work for him. Um, But I also, in in my other day off, I substitute teach, and oftentimes I'm over at K Beach Elementary, uh, and my favorite, I love teaching uh, most ages. The younger they are, the more they freak me out. Like, if they're likely to wet themselves, I'm just, I'm out. I don't want to deal with that. Uh, But my favorite by far is to teach P.E., And I love being the physical education uh, substitute teacher. And you you want an ego boost. Play capture the flag with a bunch of kindergartners. It's awesome. Like, I'm not typically known. If you know me, I'm no athletic specimen. I'm not God's gift to sports. But in this context, I'm LeBron James, right? Like these kids, we play, we have these flags around. They can't even reach my flag, let alone have the strength to yank it off, those little pansies, right? And so what do, what do I do, though? What do I do in the game? Like, just keep, like, doing the Heisman on them, right? And just, like, get the flag and run across the line and eat it, you know, and just, like, celebrating. I can't do that because then they won't ask me to come back, right? So for job security, I, I let them catch me right? Oh, you got me, buddy. Oh, you're taking me to jail. Oh, so sweet, right? I I let them catch me. But let me be clear. No kindergartner takes my flag from me. I lay it down of my own accord, (laughs) right? This morning in our story, Jesus's flag gets captured, and this is not the kindergartners here on earth. This is, not, this is not mankind defeating Jesus. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be led to death. But this is not Jesus. This is not the God of the universe being outsmarted by us. This is not Jesus being tricked like he didn't see it coming. And this is not Jesus being overpowered. What do we read last week in John 10? He says it so clearly. No one, referring to his own life, takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back up. This charge I have received from my Father. This is my Father's will. This is not mankind defeating God. This is God laying his life down for mankind. And what we're going to see here in this story The pinnacle of our story is the battle does not take place. Well, we're going to look next week at the Sanhedrin Supreme Court. It does not take place 
on the Roman trial with Pilate. It does not take place even on the cross. The battle we're going to see this morning takes place and, and, and sin and death are held in a checkmate in the exact same place that it all began, in a garden. And what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 26 is we're going to see before us the story unfold. We're going to see the greatest temptation that the world has ever known, that Jesus faces even before he ever even gets to the cross. And we're going to see out of this his response. We're going to see the greatest prayer that's ever been uttered. And then finally, on the other side of that prayer, we're going to see Jesus in humble submission in the greatest act of obedience the world has ever known. So first, the temptation. Remember we said last week that this is Jesus' final week here on earth. And on Monday, or excuse me, Sunday, he comes, he comes strolling into Jerusalem. Everyone's there for the festival. Everyone's there to see this dead man, Razor. And he comes in on this donkey, and they're waving palm branches, and they're, they're throwing their clothes down on the street for him to walk on. And they're saying, Hosanna, which you remember, it means save us. And what do they want him to save him from? The Romans. We're sick of being oppressed by the Romans. Jesus has come to give us peace on earth. But what did he show us Monday? He goes, I didn't come here to defeat the Romans. I came to defeat the sin in your hearts. And he drives out the money changers in the temple. And he shows them, your worship is corrupt. You can't come to God rightly under the law. That's why I came here to do something completely new. And on Thursday, he showed them what that new thing was going to be. And he sat down at the Passover meal, which for 1,500 years was celebrated as a story of God's deliverance from the people over, out of Egypt from the plagues and the Red Sea. And he goes, I'm telling you today, a new story. And he says, this, this, this bread, it represents my body that's going to be broken for you. And this blood, this, this wine represents my blood that will be spilled for you in a new covenant, in a story that we continue to tell each other to this day of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross and when he rose again. And so after that meal, it's Thursday night, and what it says in the next verse when they had sung a hymn, which is how they would typically wrap up a Passover meal, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now this Mount, Mount of Olives, okay, this is kind of what it looks like modern day. You can see the olive trees there. Um, it's where it gets its name. Now this is not like Alaskan mountains, clearly, right? This is like Appalachian mountains, the weenie mountains that they know on the East Coast, right? Hills is what we call them. Footrests. These are not, these are not great Alaskan mountains, but nonetheless, it's a beautiful place, and on the way to this mouth, not, not very far from where they would have been eating, he huddles up the disciples. He says, bring it in, boys. This is what he says. You will all fall away because of me this night. Okay, that's not very uplifting, is it? Tonight, you're all going to run away. For it is written, this is a prophecy, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He's referencing uh, Zechariah 13 here. He says, I'm going to be stricken over the next few hours, and you all are going to be the sheep that run away from me. And Peter, always so level-headed, right? Quick to listen, slow to speak. He pipes up. He goes, though they will all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Peter goes, no, maybe these other pansy sheep, but not me, Jesus. I've got your back. And Jesus looks at him. What does he say? I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He goes, oh, Peter, you will not be able to stand up to a servant girl and claim that you know me. To which Peter, he responds, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. He says, no, Lord, I will never disown you. That's not me. 
I will die with you. And all the, all the disciples, they say, yeah, us too, Jesus. We've got your back. But what we'll see is before the night is over, they will all completely abandon Jesus. He's the only one that's obedient to the point of death. So they walk to this, this mount, and specifically, he says, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane is a garden in, in the Mount of Olives. And you see here a picture of it today. Um, it's, it's an olive grove. It's this quiet orchard where Jesus many times took the disciples to pray. It was a place where they could escape the crowds, the hustle and bustle of the city. And he takes them up there, and, and you can actually see today in the background there, there's a Catholic church that stands in the olive grove today, and, and they have kept this, this little prayer garden. And these, these trees that you're looking at are over 500 years old. It's an incredibly beautiful place. But the name Gethsemane, it means olive oil press, which is, which is how they would squeeze the, the oil out of the olives. And we're going to see here, it's, it's a fitting name because Jesus, in this garden at midnight, is going to be squeezed. In fact, it's going to say that sweat drops of blood come out of him. He is going to be pressed face a pressure that human history has ever known. What we're going to witness here tonight is a clashing of Jesus' holiness and his humanity. He's God, but he's also man. And there's a supernatural struggle that takes place. It defies our comprehension. And in verse 36, he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. There's 11 of them. Judas has already, he's already run, and he's going to go. He's setting up the betrayal. So there's 11 of them. He looks at eight of them and says, stay here. And then it says, taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which is James and John. Remember their, uh, their type A soccer mom was the one that was like, my boys will sit next to you on the throne, right, one day. And, and Jesus, he calls them this. They're brash. They're bold, right? Little, little, little uh, stubborn. And, and Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. This is the nickname he gives this duo. So we've got the sons of thunder, and then we've got Peter. Now, what does Peter mean? It means rock, right? So this Peter, the rock, is the son of John, or the son of Jonah. So as my uh, Bible school teacher liked to call him, his name's Rock Johnson, right? So here you got Rock Johnson and the sons of thunder, which would make a great 80s hairband, or maybe a WWF team or something like that. But these are Jesus' three boys. These are the inner of his inner, the, the most intimate friends that Jesus knows. And he looks to his three friends in this moment. He says to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. He says, I need you boys. He says, I'm sorrowful to the point where I feel like I'm going to die. Verse 37, he says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now this word, it's, it's really, it's a lot weightier than how we, we, we translate it troubled. But really the Greek here was the most extreme anguish that a soul can feel. Jesus is, is experiencing a spiritual type of, of torture. You could call it a panic attack, where he's experiencing anxiety to the point where he is going to collapse. So he feels like I might literally die from the weight of what I'm experiencing right now. And then in verse 30, and 30 or excuse me, Dr. Luke, he says it this way. It's, it's so bad that his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, there are some scholars who think this might be hyperbole, but we actually know this is a thing. Like, this is a thing that can happen, and it's called hemotidrosis. And what it means is it was this, it was this thing where if you're, you're so stressed out that your blood capillaries, they can, they can become inflamed or, or engorged, and, and they actually pop from the pressure and out of, your sweat bland, out of your sweat glands comes blood. 
Jesus is experiencing the maximum amount of human stress possible. And then in verse 39, it says going a little bit further, he fell on his face. Jesus' physical strength gives out and he collapses face down. Jesus breaks. He breaks. Have you ever known someone in your life, maybe a parent or, or a rock in your life, someone that you've always depended on, who's always been your stability, and you just see them break? You've seen them in this moment where they're, they're huddled in the fetal position, weeping. Someone that you've always looked up to, that that's, that's your rock, and they break. Jesus, for three years, they abandoned everything they knew and followed him. He's their universe. He's their shepherd, and they watch him break. Man, what's going on here? Well, Jesus, in about 15 hours, what he's about to endure, and listen, I don't think the main thing on Jesus' mind, I don't think the main point of his anxiety are, are the whippings that he's about to receive or the nails that will be driven through him or the crown of thorns is going to be jammed onto his head. What's brought Jesus to this breaking point is knowing that he is about to absorb the wrath of God for every sin that's ever been committed. I mean, you think about this. Like if, if I commit one sin, one sin would bear justly the wrath of God against me for all time. For as long as God is holy, that sin will be offensive to him and must be paid for. I must be separated from him because of that. Now think about all the sins that I've committed just this year, let alone in my whole lifetime. And Jesus is absorbing the wrath for all of that. And that's just me. On this planet right now, there's 7 billion people. You start multiplying that out, then all the people who have ever lived. And here's Jesus absorbing the wrath for billions of eternities. And what is death? Death is a separation from God. Here's Jesus. He is God. He spent eternity past in a, in a relationship in, with God and the Spirit in this Trinitarian relationship. And then he leaves God to come to this earth, but still on this earth is walking a moment-by-moment moment dependence and fellowship with his Father. And he knows when he gets onto that cross and he absorbs that sin, he will be separated from his Father to the billionth power. He knows he's going to die. And, and, and look, this isn't, this isn't news to Jesus, right? This isn't a new fact that he's coming to grips with. I mean, Jesus has predicted this for the last three years to his disciples. He knows he's going to die. What's going on? Well, he's God, but he's also human. And we're watching Jesus as a human emotionally unravel. His will and his emotion are catching up to his brain. He's, he's coming to terms with what this really means for him to be the Messiah, that he's going to save and rescue us by not being saved and rescued himself, by dying the death of a billion deaths. And, and he knows this is the mission he was sent to earth for, to seek and save the lost, but now he finds himself in the garden, and he finds himself with a choice. And there could be this temptation here, this temptation to, to, to leave it all, to leave this mission on the shelf. I mean, you go back to the first garden when Adam and Eve were there with the tree, right? They were given a choice. God said, if you eat of this tree, you'll die. So they could either obey God, they, they could believe what God said, that they believe that God had their best interest in mind, that God's way was best, or they could say, I don't trust you. 
and do what they wanted, not what God wanted. Say, I know better than you, God, and I'm not going to trust your word. I'm not going to trust what you've given for me. I'm going to take this matter into my own hands, and I'll decide what's good and evil and eat of the tree. And of course, we know what decision they made. And now, we're back in another garden, right? And here's the last Adam, as Paul calls him in Corinthians 15. And he's also in a garden. And he's also faced with a choice. And do you remember back when when Jesus was with Satan in the wilderness, what happened? Satan said, I could give you all of the glory without the suffering. You can circumvent the cross. If you'll bow down to me right here, right now, I'll give you the whole world. And you can do this without dying. And here again, Jesus, just like that first Adam, he's faced with this choice. You could say, God, I don't trust that your way is best. I, I don't want to suffer and die It wasn't that Jesus didn't want us to be in heaven. It's just that he knew what what he was about to face. And he could say, I'm out, right? I'm walking away from all this. I don't want that kind of suffering. I want to live. What would have happened if Jesus would have bailed? Satan wins. Satan knows, exactly. Satan knows if he can keep Jesus from the cross, that he wins, that it's game over. He knows that there will be no salvation, that, that, that heaven will be empty and devoid of human beings. But he knows if Jesus willingly walks to the cross, that it's game over for sin and death and himself. So what does Jesus do in the darkest moment of his life? When he faces the greatest temptation the world has ever known, Jesus prays. He prays. Verse 39, going a little farther, he fell on his face, and what did he do? He prayed. He prayed, Jesus knows. Jesus knows he cannot pass this test. He will not overcome this temptation to Baal without the strength of his Father. Jesus was our perfect example. He's coming to earth and taking on this body. He's walking in a perfect dependence and submission to his Father. You see, prayer, prayer is the evidence of our trust in God. It's the action step of our trust in the Father. It says, I need you. That's exactly where Jesus goes in this moment. He prays prays the greatest prayer that's ever been uttered on this planet. And I believe that if you and I prayed this prayer consistently, that we would would be be without sin. He says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He says, father, which is the the Greek equivalent to Abba, daddy, cries out to his daddy, And what does he say? Man, if there's another way, if there is another way, take this cup away from me. And when he talks about this cup, this, this cup in the Old Testament, the prophets would talk about this cup of God's wrath being poured out on sinners. That they would drink from God's wrath. It's his punishment. It's his judgment and justice on the sins of mankind. And what Jesus knows, what he's going to do for us is he's going to drink that cup for us. And he goes, Father, if there is a way, let this cup pass. If there's another way to victory that doesn't involve me drinking every drop of your wrath, I want that path. But then what does he say? Not my will, but yours. Not what I want. What do you want? He says, I trust you with my life. I trust that you know what's best. And unlike Adam and Eve, who said, I'll eat of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, we'll decide what's right and wrong. He says, God, I'm leaving that into your hands. I I leave that you know what is best for me. 
in the hands of a sovereign God. And if this is the only way, let's do this. And Jesus, he not only looks to his Father's will, but he also looks to his Father's strength to accomplish his Father's will. And look at what happens back in Luke. It says, after he prayed this, it says, there appeared to him an angel from heaven who strengthened him. Does that sound familiar? Remember when he was in the desert, 40 days with no food or water, and after Satan tempts him, it says these angels come and they, they administer to him. They give him strength. And God says, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to give you a plan B, but I will be the one who will sustain you through this death, and there will be life on the other side. You will make it through this. I will ultimately rescue you from death, but it's going to be not around it, but through it. And Jesus, he comes to his disciples, and and just like he has prayed, look at what he says to them. He says he came to that place, and he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, if Jesus, the Son of God, needs to pray, do you think his disciples need to depend on God too? Do you think you and I need to cling to the Father? And he says, pray that you do not enter into temptation. And just like Jesus prayed, not my will but yours be done, where does that come from? It comes from the Lord's Prayer, right? What did he teach them how to pray? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And lead us not into temptation. He says, man, we're all going to be faced with temptation tonight. Me and you. And the disciples are going to be tempted to run, to flee, to deny. One of them will betray. And unlike Jesus, we're going to see each of them fail miserably. What happens when he returns to his disciples? He, He prays the prayer three times. And all three times when he comes back to them, they're racked out. They're sleeping. Now, what is going on here? Are they bored, right? They're in this lame olive garden. There's no Netflix. What do we do? Let's just take a nap, right? No, look at what Luke says. This gives us some insight. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. For sorrow. And put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a moment. Think about the week they've had. Jesus, their master, the same one that came to them at the beginning of this all and said, drop your fishing nets, change your entire life, leave your families and follow me. And for three years, they've they've collected the dust of Jesus' sandals on their face. They've walked that road with him. And now in this final week, he has said, I'm going to die. And you all are going to face persecution like you've never known. They're facing sorrow too. They're facing anxiety too. They're being brought to the breaking point too. And sleep is the only way of escape. (laughs) You've been there? they They are driven to the point of exhaustion by their sorrow. But unlike Jesus, they don't turn to the Father in their weakness and their anxiety. They fail the test. They fall asleep, and as we'll see in a moment, they run. Jesus comes over to them that third time and he says, rise, get up, wake up. Let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And when he says, let us be going, he doesn't say, "Uh uh-oh, the the, the guy's coming that's going to try to turn me over to the Jews. Let's be going out of here. Let's be going away from here. No, no, no. It's let us be going right into it. Let's walk right into it. Jesus has prayed. God has given him strength. He says, I'll do it if this is what you want. I'll do that if this is the only way to save mankind whom I love. And he steps out and he shows us the greatest act of obedience that's ever been known on planet Earth. Let's let's look at the story of Jesus' capture, his arrest. 
While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now John's account says there's this group of Roman soldiers here. And there could be, scholars say there could be as many as a thousand people on hand. 600 soldiers who are usually in a posse together. And then you've got temple guards, you've got Pharisees, you've got priests. There could be a thousand people here. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. This of course is Judas. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, which means teacher. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend. <laughs> he calls Judas his friend. What did Jesus say he was? He's a friend of sinners. Do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Jesus has been captured. He's been arrested. Now, what's going on here? Why, why do they bring a thousand people, right? I wonder, like, did they think about the temple when he went Hulk mode, right? Flipping over tables. They're like, this guy's crazy. Let's get everybody we know. No, I don't think that's what's going on here. They know that if they capture Jesus, this will cause a mass riot, it's the same reason they're doing this at midnight, not the middle of the day. The people, they, they remember Palm Sunday. They remember everybody saying, here's the king. Here's our peace on earth. They know this is going to tick the people off. So they come at night. They've got a whole posse ready for this reaction from the people. And at midnight, they, they, they capture him. Now Judas, who's one of the disciples, one of his, he calls his friend, he throws him under the bus for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver was the common price for a, a slave. And how fitting that Jesus comes to be the servant of the world and he's bought for the price of a slave. But make no mistake, this is not where the battle takes place. This is not a thousand versus one and they get Jesus and he's not strong enough or quick enough to escape all of these people. The battle did not take place here with the arrest. The battle took place in the garden and when Jesus surrendered to the Father's will, it was game over. And, and there's evidence here. When they said, they said, who, who is, who out, who out here is, is the, the Nazarene, this Jesus? And, and, say, and Judas identifies him with a kiss, but Jesus speaks up for himself in John. He says, I am he. And look at what happens when Jesus says these words. He says, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. Possibly a thousand people falling to the ground because Jesus speaks the words, I am. How cool is that? Jesus identifies himself as God. I am. We don't know if that's actually what it meant there, the, the word for Yahweh. But he says, I am, and a thousand people fall over at the word of God. Man, I wish I had that power. How cool would that be? You walk around, I am, everyone just kind of, bam. Another good reason, Justin's not God. Um, as I am, and they, and they all fall to the ground. And then more classic Peter here. Behold, one of them, here he's not named, but other, other uh, synoptics show that he's Peter. One of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So <laughs> Peter sees them grabbing his master and goes, oh no, he didn't, right? And he takes out his sword and goes Rock Johnson on them, right? Slices off his ear with a karate chop. Now I think, I'd imagine, if you're trying to take these guys out, He's probably aiming for the head, right? I mean, that would be the better way to take someone out. I doubt he's going Mike Tyson here and just trying to take off the guy's ear. So not only is Peter brash, he's a terrible aim, right? And Peter's just got all sorts of problems. But here, Peter's already failed Jesus by not doing something when he was supposed to be doing something. He was supposed to be praying in the garden, and instead he falls asleep from his sorrow. And here, he's not supposed to be doing anything. God is willingly handing Jesus over, and he tries to take them out by using his sword. 
And look at what, how Jesus responds in verse 52. It's, Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. He goes, we're not here to kill these guys. I'm here to lay my life down for these guys. And in other accounts, we see that he actually heals the man's ear. Jesus always having his mind on others. Then he says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? He goes, think about this for a second, Peter. If I wanted to, I could call more than 12 legions of angels. Now, a legion was approximately 6,826 soldiers. That was, I guess that's not approximate, that's exact. And if there's 12 legions, I'll do the math for you so you don't have to use your calculator. 81,912 angels. In fact, he says I could call more than that if I wanted to. He says, with a snap of my fingers, I could summon 80,000 angels and wipe these guys out. You think I need your puny little hobbit sword? Sharpshooter, right? I'm God. And what he's reminding Peter here, he goes, look, this is not man defeating God. What's going on here? Verse 54, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He's saying this has been God's plan since before the dawn of time. This is all of the prophecies, all of the Old Testament. Everything's been leading up to this moment. And in order to fulfill scripture, in order to reconnect man with God, this must happen. This is not man defeating God. This is God voluntarily, willingly coming to earth and handing himself over to men. In fact, it's the very men who are going to kill him that he is in the process saving. It's unbelievable. And you go back to the garden. There was two gardens. In the first garden, Adam disobeyed. He failed the test. He did not believe God. He ate of the tree. He said, my way is better. My will, not yours. And what happened? Sin entered into the world. But here we see the last Adam, the second Adam, back in a garden. And what happens? The second Adam, Jesus, he perfectly obeys God. And he conquers the sin that was committed in the first garden. See, in the first garden, the first Adam was told to go to the tree of life. You can eat of the tree of life, and you can live with me forever. You'll trust me. But instead, he chose the tree that led to death. The second Adam, he willingly went to the tree of death. He went to the cross so that we might have life. The imagery here is so beautiful. It's so beautiful. How does the story end? Verse 56. All the disciples left him and fled. The men who less than two hours earlier said, we will die with you, Jesus. We will go to hell and back with you, Jesus. We will never abandon you, Jesus. The moment he's arrested, they all run. The shepherd's been stricken and the sheep scatter. They have done nothing but fail him. They fall asleep on him in the garden. One of them is the one that betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. They flee from him. We're going to see that Peter denies him three times. And they all have completely bailed on him. You remember when you were a kid? And you're playing in the backyard, right? And you're, you're, you're like, you're pretending like you're, you're going to, you got you and your friends or your siblings or, you know, if you were all by yourself, your imaginary friends. Uh, I don't want to talk about it. And you'd want to be a sh- you'd be like pretend like you were in you know were some show or cartoon, and we all be like, well, I'm gonna be this guy, well, I'm gonna be that guy, right? Now, who did we always want to be? If it was up to me and I got first pick, I'm Batman, right? Hands down, 
I'm Batman every single time. I don't want to be that wimpy damsel in distress that he saves, right? I don't want to be the bad guy. I don't want to be Joker. I want to be the hero of the story. I want to be the good guy. And we go to the garden here, and man, <laughs> who are we? Like we, we want to be the hero, right? I'd like to say that I'm, I'm Jesus in this story, that I'm the one that, that does the right thing, that I'm the hero, that I'm the, the one that everybody else can trust on and count on. But in this story, you and I, man, we are the damsel in distress. We are the ones who, who put ourselves in this mess in the first place. We were born of that first Adam, and like, like Adam, we say this, we say, not your will, but mine. Not, not what you want, God, what, what I want. See, that's sin in a nutshell. We're like the disciples who we boldly claim for God. We will, God, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do that for you. I promise this is the last time I'm ever going to commit that sin. We make all these claims, all these promises, all these bold declarations to God. But in the midnight garden of our souls, when we're pressed like the olive oils, we run. We run away. And we say, God, I don't trust you. I don't, I don't trust where you're leading me. I don't trust where you're... This looks like suffering. This looks like abandonment. This looks like death, God. And so what do we do? We fearfully run. And we run away from him. And we run to other things that we think will save us instead of his way, his will. And we say, man, if I, I run to my money. If I can get enough put into my bank account, enough saved away, I can protect myself and my family... And we say, I don't trust your way, God. I'm going I'm to go this way. Or we say, I don't trust you, so I'm going to run to people. And I think enough people validate me. I get enough attention. I impress enough people in my life. But that way is better. Or I put my trust in the bottle. I say, God, I don't trust you to satisfy me, so I'm going to feel good another way. Or I turn on my laptop. I say, God, I don't think you're going to trust me, so I'm going to try this way. And we turn to the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Say, I'll decide what's right and wrong, God. I don't trust you. And like Judas, the joker, we betray our Lord for a little bit of cash, thinking that that's a better savior. But the good news is, God does not abandon us in the midnight garden of our soul. He joins us there in the person of Jesus. See, not only is Jesus with us when we walk through the darkest moments of our life, we're with Jesus. No matter what you're facing, no matter what I'm going through, we're not trailblazers. There is no path that we walk that Jesus has not already walked. He knew the wrath of God for a billion deaths, a billion separations. Jesus knows your pain. He says, I'm there with you, and you're with me. And even when everyone else failed him, and we will fail him, fail him on a daily basis, he does not fail. He overcame for you and I what we never could. That's why we put our hope, hope in nothing else. I don't put my hope in you. You better not put your hope in me, other people, other things in our lives. Jesus is the only one who said, he didn't say not your will but mine. What did Jesus say? Not my will but yours be done. And if we prayed that prayer every single day, if, that was, if we always said, God, I trust you, not myself, it's whatever you want, God, that I'll do, not what I want to do, we wouldn't sin. There would be no sin in this world if that was our prayer every single day. But we were born in the first Adam, and we can't pray this prayer. We can't mean this prayer, and we don't pray this prayer. And we don't mean this prayer. 
And that's why Jesus came to do what we could never do, the will of the Father. Jesus is Batman, right? It's great out of context. Our pastor said Jesus is Batman. The stage is set, and next week, sin and Satan will be defeated forever. Jesus, we'll see, will die for you and I. But the game was over in the garden. Sin and death have been held in checkmate. Satan held in checkmate when Jesus said, what you want, God, is what I want. And he gave himself over to be arrested. I love the song, Christ is Risen. We're going to sing it at the very end. And it has this beautiful line. It says, beneath the weight of all of our sin. He had the sin, every sin that I've committed, the wrath of that was on Jesus. And every sin that you've committed, and every person in this world, beneath the weight of all, all our sin, you could have ran. You could have said, I'm out. You could have said, I, I don't want this, therefore I'm not going to do it. But beneath the weight of all our sin, you bowed to none but heaven's will. He surrendered himself to the Father, even to the point of death. And we read it earlier. Jeff, and, Jeff was reading my mind today. You look at Philippians chapter 2, he says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself, how? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He said, God, if this is the only way, if this is the only way, I love them so much, if this is the only way to have a relationship with mankind again, I'll do it. And he surrendered himself to God's will. Therefore, therefore, because he was obedient, because he said, your will, not mine, because he voluntarily laid his life down, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because he obeyed, because he bowed down low in the garden, God raised him up on a cross, but then raised him up even higher. God did not save him from death, but he saved him through death. And on the other side, he raised God so that one day all people on earth would bow down to him and lift high the name of Jesus. Let's do that together. Father, I thank you. The only thing that's left for me is to say thank you that Jesus came and he died, that he in the garden said, not my will but yours, that he surrendered himself to your will, that he trusted that your way was better. And because he willingly suffered, because he willingly bled and died for me, you hear my prayers this morning. And God, I pray that, that we would put our hope in Jesus and nowhere else. That the moral of the story is not be better, pray more, try harder, promise God more that we would recognize we're the disciples in this story. We're Judas in this story. We're the, we're the high priests in this story. There's one hero. There's one Batman, and that's Jesus. Lord, that we might place our hope in Jesus and nowhere else. And that as we become more like him, Jesus in us, that same Jesus in the garden, lives in us today. And that Jesus in us today might echo the prayer, not my will, but yours. And I don't know, there's... there's there's almost 200 people in this, in this building today. And we're in very different places. And there's some of us who are experiencing the dark night of the soul, the midnight garden of Gethsemane. And you're not taking this cup from us. And we're going through something hard. 
And we don't see the way out. And Lord, you may not, you may not hit the ejection seat for us. We may be, you may be leading us right through the valley of the shadow of death. But that not like Jesus, but Jesus in us would say, if there's a way out, take this cup from me. But if there's not, I want what you want. That you give us the grace to trust you, that your way is better. And that you don't save us from death, you save us through death. And the resurrection promise stands for us as well. And even though you slay us, like Job said, I will follow you. Help our unbelief. May we trust your word that the promises you've given us can be trusted. That you are a God who will never leave us nor forsake us, just like you did not abandon your son in the garden or on the cross. We ask for the grace to trust you more. We want what you want, not what we want. It's in Jesus' name that was lifted high. We pray. Amen.